So I just go in here and what? Just talk? Oh, okay. How, how do I how how do I get the thing to go on? Oh, oh, it's already going. Oh, okay. It sounds like fun. Okay. Um, hello. Is 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 this working? Can you hear me? Boltzmann uh, just put me in this room and told me to talk into this tube. So, hello, tube. Uh, my name is Beans in the Valley, but you can just call me Beans. Everybody else does. I don't actually think that anyone has ever asked my full name before, but it's okay, it's okay. It's not like they called me Boots. Well, not anymore, anyway. It's been a bit of a journey for me. I come from a a, a small little moving village in the valleys, and one day they told me that I was going to be sent far away and to do some uh, work for some very nice people. I got taught to sneak and to stay light on my paws and I got to move quite a few things around. After that though, I think I maybe I was just too good and at staying sneaky that, and they forgot about me. I'm not complaining though, I got to join the fire breathing kittens and make some new, often terrifying friends. So let's see, uh, since I've joined, I've learned to read and write, and oh, by the way, my favourite letter is W, and that's because it's weird, because it's not two U's together, it's two V's. Uh, Crutch told me why though, he said, shut up beans, I'm trying to remove this guy's kidney before he wakes up. So, that makes sense to me. Now, I've been on a lot of different adventures to a lot of different places, and I've done more than a little bit of giant worm hunting. Not hunting in the bad way, I just want to see one. Luckily though, I now have a baby giant worm in my care. I've named him Wiggly, and he's growing quite slowly. Um, that said, I'm not entirely sure what he eats. So I'm just feeding him whatever leftovers there are from Crud's operating table. I'm sure that won't come back to bite me in any bad way. Um, I keep Wiggly in my ponchamuk in a special pocket, like the one Crud keeps me in sometimes. Uh, although that said, I do have a new professional ponchamuk for work, but I do keep getting a lot of weird looks when I'm at the courthouse. Um, maybe it's just the fish jerky I keep in there. Maybe, maybe not. Who's to say? I guess it doesn't matter either way. I managed to pass my final exams, uh, so now I'm a detective and a lawyer. Ooh, and not to brag, but I'm actually a pretty good detective. So that's why I'm here, I, I think, anyway. If you need someone to defend you in a courtroom or... Uh, you need someone to investigate your own murder, then look no further, I am here to help. If you find yourself on the wrong end of either a criminal or the law, then just remember three words. Better call beans. That's me, I'm not sure what calling is, but they said it would sound good. So is that short enough to do the advert, Boltzmann? Uh, uh, what are we doing for that? What do you mean this wasn't a practice? What do you mean this is getting broadcast live? What's broadcast mean? Anyway, am I done? Can I go home? Where's my fish? Oh, outside, okay. Anyway, let me just turn this off. How do I find the right button?
Epilogue. Who's got time for that? I got patience to see too. All right, next please. All right, I see what's wrong with you. Nurse, bring me the blood bucket and the goblin parts. All right, bite down on this. Kess's journey with the fire-breathing kittens may have been relatively short, but being an adventurer in their ranks was life-changing for her. One year ago, Kess decided to leave her home, the faraway Nidok tribe of orcs she considered her family, in order to explore the world, meet new people and friends, and, of course, find more of the shiny things that fascinated her. She spread her wings and flew tens of thousands of miles to Nikamui, where she gathered lots of shiny things. Some of the shiniest things she got were a golden tooth that gave her the ability to eat souls and terrify her foes, a powerful green potion with a picture of her on the bottle, and the shiniest jewel in the universe. Her brightest treasure, though, that outshone all of those treasures, were the friends she made along the way, and her rediscovered love for her family. After making sure her friends and Jenny, Dr. Cred III's teenage daughter, made it back to Nikamoy safe and sound, Kes went on a couple more adventures with the fire-breathing kittens. Though Kes was still in her prime, and being a guild member was very rewarding for her, she decided to retire from the fire-breathing kittens and go back to the Nedok tribe. Her family welcomed her back with open arms and celebrated her arrival as one of the most respected and esteemed members of the orc tribe, despite Kes being a humanoid falcon and not an orc. She saved eight of their greatest warriors from a formidable time dragon that kept them in a time loop for over a century. By popular vote, she became the next chief of the Neduk tribe, as she was more than capable. Imagine that, a five-foot-tall falcon being the next chief of a tribe of orcs. Her chiefdom lasted two terms, about four years, before she figured out that she wanted to progress to the next stage of her life. She was, after all, a middle-aged falcon. She found a handsome, peregrine falcon-type Aarakocra named Pierre, and they became mates for life. They had cute humanoid falcon chicks and founded a colony of Aarakocra, close to the Neduk tribe, who became their neighbors. Throughout her life, she always cherished the memories she made with fire-breathing kittens, and she would sometimes travel the long distance to Nikamoy and visit her friends Olive, Aaron, Boltzmann, Dr. Cred III, and Jenny, whenever she could. And thus continues the story of a cute but fierce humanoid kestrel. She did have one message for you all. If you want something in life, go and get it. You might have to fight for it, but the fighting is fun. <laughs> At least for me it is. Not so much for those I fight. Oh yes, and the uh, friends. With the right friends, you'll get so much more than you ever dreamed of. So, love your friends and bite your enemies. Yes, honey. What was that, Pierre? Oh, right, uh, I have to go feed my babies. They don't eat souls like I do, they eat meat, so I have to give them some of that. <laughs> okay, well, bye-bye now.
Mephistopheles was erased from existence. My friends were safe, and I was riding a magical rainbow unicorn back to my family's castle to return the rare books that belonged to our library. So why did I feel this emptiness? Surely defeating the ruler of hell should have some sort of afterglow of happiness. I arrived at the gates of the castle to be greeted by Chauncey, my uncle's butler. He wore a dour expression, even for him. He hadn't even finished his sentence when I pushed him out of the way and ran inside as fast as I could. The guards threatened to stand in my way, saw who I was, and allowed me to pass. I made it to my father's bedside. The man who once seemed like a giant to me now seemed small and frail, like he was made from paper. He motioned me to come close. <coughs> you have the books? Yes, father. And Mephistopheles? Gone forever, erased from existence. Then you're free, he smiled. Free from him, at least. But still not free, he asked. His coughing was dry and painful. I shook my head. <laughs> I see. You feel imprisoned by me, by your addictions, by your past. Every word he spoke felt like a step deeper into my shame. He took a long, ragged breath. Your mother used to tell me Mulrier stopped trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I've always tried to turn you into something you're not, and look where it got you. I braced myself for the admonishment. A weakling, he'd say. A coward. A selfish, spoiled, gluttonous excuse for a dragonborn, he'd say. You're a hero who feels like a failure. Come again? He looked confused. <laughs> Nesgrax, you've freed trapped souls. You've won fighting tournaments. You've sacrificed more wealth and power than most could ever hope to accumulate so that you could protect your family. And you've defeated the Lord of Hell. If you think that my opinion of you should have any significance, then you're... <laughs> then you're using the wrong end of the looking glass. So you're not 
you're not ashamed of me?' I asked. He looked frustrated and coughed again. He took a deep enough breath to put some force behind his words. "'You're not listening to me. If my feelings towards you are the measure by which you judge yourself, whether they are good or bad, shameful or proud, you'll always be in a prison of your own making. How do you feel about yourself?' Is the question. Would you change anything? Do you regret the way your life has turned out? Do you lack courage, <clears throat> wisdom, friendship? I felt my heart grow. It was as if something inside of me had been hiding in a basement for a very long time and finally decided to come out. I smiled. My father smiled back and patted my claw. I didn't think so. He died three days later. His funeral was fit for a king. My friends were by my side. Olive, Dr. Crud III, Tanager, Mendax. Even my girlfriend Megan the succubus turned up wearing a mostly tasteful black dress that was only barely see-through. After his body was sent afloat down the river, and I could no longer see him around the bends. I asked to be alone, and sat on the river bank. I heard a familiar voice from behind me say, Hello, sexy. I turned, and there he was, my old friend Moses, the human outlander from Nelim. My father had saved his life from bandits, and in return he had become something of a mentor and protector to me. He was hopeless with women when we first met, but I was able to teach him to loosen up and have fun. After he met his wife Rita, we saw each other less and less. Now the father of five children, I had written him off as a casualty of family life. Shouldn't you be changing a diaper somewhere, I japed. He sat next to me and took a deep breath as if he were about to meditate. I am sorry that I have not found you sooner. Don't worry about it, I said. Actually, no, hold on, you should worry about it. I stood up, looking down on the huge man. First, you fall in love. Good for you. Then you have kids. Excellent. Then slowly but surely you completely drop off the map. You didn't even say goodbye when I was exiled. You didn't say welcome back when I returned. 
Now you're here, and you expect to be able to just pick up. I stopped, noticing the tattoo on the inside of his forearm. You, you joined the guild, I asked. He nodded. What for? I had heard you died at the Department of Gnomeland Security. I came to pay my respects, but the circumstances of your death seemed funny. I joined the guild to try to understand what happened to you. Then one day, you returned. And you didn't think to say hello to me all this time? I thought about it, but, uh, he trailed off. What? I said, more angrily than I meant to. I was ashamed. You were my friend. You helped me meet my wife. And in return, I abandoned you, because I was afraid you would corrupt me. Suddenly my anger turned to compassion. Moses didn't turn his back on me. He was protecting his young family from who I used to be. From my addictions. Moses, I said, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You were right. I was a danger to myself and the people I was close to back then. Come on, let's Get some dinner or something. He stood up. Some place not expensive, please. It's my treat, I started. Wait, why? Are you are you having money issues? I have had some bad luck at my workshop lately. It is only temporary. I have found employment elsewhere. He gestured to his tattoo. You're still with the guild? I asked, surprised. He nodded. Perhaps we will be adventuring with each other soon enough. I woke up in Megan's bed in her dorm room at the school upon high where we met. She smiled at me, showing her fangs. You seem happy, she said. I think I am. Strange feeling. You'll have to tell me about it some day, she yawned. There was a knock at the door. Yes, Megan asked. The door opened by itself and I felt the room get cold. Megan leapt out of bed and stood naked before a stunning woman in purple. Well, I say she was in purple. Mostly she was out of it. A lot of skin showing. Milky white. Perfect skin. It looked as soft as anything. I wanted to reach out and... Nesgrax! Megan shouted. I shook my head. Hello, I said and did a dumb little wave. The woman gave me a half-smile. So, this is the one who destroyed Mephistopheles. 
I started to put on my trousers. Well, I had some help, right, Ghoulie? I gave a thumbs up to my ghoul who was standing in the corner of the room quietly. He raised a corpsey hand and waved. And, um, who might you be, my lady? Megan turned to me. Nesgrax, I'd like you to meet the demon lord of hedonists, prostitutes, and the queen of succubi in the realm of Shendelavri, holder of the razor throne, my mother, Malkinthet. Okay, what an intro. Normally, Nesgrax Scarsbarouche, we'd have more time for pleasantries, she said seductively. But I'm afraid we don't have that luxury. I must show you what is to come if we are to have any hope. She floated towards me. I felt myself sinking into darkness. She pressed her lips to mine. I was expecting pleasure, but I felt terror, then pain. I heard screams, screaming voices, familiar to me. Mendax, Moses, Tanager. Olive! A thousand nightmares filled my vision, and then... was silenced. She pulled her lips away, and looked into my eyes. Nesgrax cannot stop what is coming. A fundamental change in your core nature. This is an evil spell. But you will lose By becoming part a dragon of yourself. Zorbital. But that means you would no longer be Nezgrax, the dragonborn the wizard, to transcend to true dragonhood. But you can become something more. She looked to the open window of the room which led to the balcony. The sun had risen, and the sky was clear. It was quite a view from up where we were in the tower. I looked at Megan, who seemed confused. Um, Megan, I'm, I'm sorry, I said. You're going to have to look after Ghoulie for me. I transferred my command of Ghoulie over to her. And, um, please tell my friends I'm sorry I didn't have time to say goodbye. Uh, but tell them I love them, and I'll see them again, at least... Sort of. I went to the balcony and looked down. Nesgrax? She said, worried. Megan, there's nothing to worry about. I stepped up onto the guardrail and balanced myself. Nesgrax? She yelled. She unfurled her wings, but Malkinthet held her. It's okay, Megan, I said. Hey, I love you as well, and I hopped down into the sky. If I had to describe the feeling, I'd say it felt like I was carrying all of these things that made me who I was, and one by one, I was letting them go. My past, my obsession with gambling, my shame, my status, I let go of my hatred towards my brother. I let go of Moses, of Mendax, of Olive, of Megan, and to my 
odlovearpod. Finally, I felt light enough to spread my wings. I pushed against the air and rose back up to the clouds. Immediately I began searching for a mountain suitable for me. I had spotted one in the distance at least 500 miles away, when I heard someone yelling something and turned back. There was a tower behind me. A pretty girl, naked, with wings and horns, was waving at me from the balcony and yelling something about a baby. I would have stopped to talk, but I had to get to work. I waved politely, then turned my attention back to the mountain. Mount Hokkaido, I think the mortals call it. Yes. Perfect lair for a brass dragon of Zorbatol. Olive Mudo began her time with fire-breathing kittens as a little bit overweight, uh, okay, a lot overweight, bipedal crocodile. She'd gotten into a routine of going to work at Target during the day, putting in her mind-dulling hours, clocking out, and then coming home to an empty apartment. Her roommates, Marlo and Remy, were either not home or were in their rooms wanting to be alone. The quiet bothered Olive. Having grown up in a large lizard folk family, home to her meant lots of people, loud noises, and a bit of chaos. Not silence, emptiness. She tried baking a bit to see if she could lure her roommates out of her cave, but all that had done was put more pounds on her waist. She needed a change, and so she had joined fire-breathing kittens. Olive thinks back over each adventure she went on with fire-breathing kittens. In Don't Drink the Water, Olive got to hide as a log floating in water and pounce up, bite an emu, and drag the giant bird back into the water to do death rolls. It was a very satisfying fight for a crocodile-like lizard folk. In Dinner Party, Olive narrowly escaped being a swimming pool snack after a dinner party on a luxury yacht cruise. In Fernburn, Olive learned about druids, got to travel to the Plain of Fire, explored a nice rock cave on a beach, and met a mermaid piranha. In the sting, Olive sampled some gnomish alcohol beverages and fine art museum gala cheese. In TubaTubers, Olive thought about basking in the desert sun, but ended up hiding for cover in the town jail and a half-finished root cellar. Some potato blight veins go too deep for one team to fix. In trial and error, Olive got to burn down an empty house, make fish pie and stew, 
and she took home an air fryer. Oh, those two truths and a lie? The truth was Olive has never tried ice cream. Her crocodile jaws are just so very large, so she'd have to bite the whole scoop at once. It didn't look like it was going to work out for her, so she hasn't tried. The second truth was Olive has never traveled outside of Guasso. And the lie was that Olive took a community college course on miming. She did not. She has not gone to community college. In the Apple of Discord, Olive learned how far she could throw a halfling. <laughs> this is the adventure she exchanged her puffy white shirt for a white half-robe Jedi-style battles wrong. In But Tell Us About the Giant Worm, after Beans asked her, she joined Harlan in helping out, while Yutung Didaskalu hired part-time help at the Taste Like Crepe Cafe and Restaurant for a month while new staff could be hired. In Mythical Dilemmas, it is somewhat unclear whether or not Olive feeding the mysterious silver potion to the goblin was murder or reckless endangerment. The case never went to trial. In A Pirate's Life, Olive resolved never to let someone else be in charge of shining her light. Also, she got called a swamp dolphin. In Thirsty Beach, Olive met Michael, a paladin, and a pretty cool dude. A minotaur, you know? After the adventure, they went on a date throwing bumble fruit for target practice, had fun, and, uh, long story short, they decided to be just friends. In The Boy Who Cried Worm, Olive tried to try some foreign food, but it didn't work out. She lost an air fryer, a gold backless ball gown, and a good friend. In Troll Training, Olive's head hurts, and she doesn't remember this adventure very well. In How to Construct a Siege, Olive's real reason for joining the fire-breathing kittens? Because she wasn't satisfied working at Tarjay and coming home to absent roommates Marlo and Remy, who were never home and didn't really care about her, just wasn't cutting it. She joined fire-breathing kittens for the same reason she played volleyball, to be on a team. In the Glyft Bowl of Crisperon, Olive met someone who just wanted to open a flower shop, but was taken from this world too soon. In the Scarsborough's Redemption, after this adventure, Olive said goodbye to her friends and spent some time in prison. A bit of time passed before the next one, which is Emmental Tales. Olive's grandmother gave the adventurers a bit of a group therapy session with cheese fumes. In a perfect fit. If clothes don't have holes in them, what's the problem? In Missives from a Corpse, playing detective was so fun! Remember to ornately carve your pineapples. In Self-Made Man, a great way to get over getting dumped is to go on an adventure with your friends. Who knows, you might even meet someone new. In Fangs for the Memories, Olive got to think about what it is that makes someone a... monster. In All Dogs Go to Changeling Heaven, the thing about milk-inspired puns is you only reach 2% of their potential. In Love Fest, Olive learned she really shouldn't try to sneak. She's no rogue. The People's Prom. It was a party for the people. In Sea Scouts and Theater Bouts, I hope I never see you again, Punnett had said in the Adventure Love Fest. <laughs> Olive agrees. <laughs> in Paw and Order UFO, fire-breathing kittens in space, she lost some teeth. In Of Art and Arson, How to Go Into Debt Real Fast, Burn Down a Mansion. 
cross-crusty running. She felt she had a responsibility to not allow the system to perpetuate victimization. This one was kind of heavy. Brownies and beef. After this adventure, Olive bought Malathia an amulet of translation and prepaid for an apartment for her to help her adjust to life in Nicomoy and pursue her dream of becoming an actress. In Culture Clash, Olive remains really curious what that kilt guy was there for. A demon hunter? No. Next time, she won't go off and take a nap, and maybe she'll get a chance to find out. No more naps. In Rolo D6, Olive thought about it. Why does she think all the evil people are adorable? She shrugged her alligator shoulders. It's a mystery. In Ghost Tea Party, Olive bought a boat. The guild already had a little rowboat called the Sparrow, so she named this large galley ship, crewable by three people or more, the Jack Sparrow. Olive thinks about birds of a heather and concludes, Hell is other people. In Sappy Little Trees, Quote, after all, one can't complain, I have my friends, from Eeyore. Quote, the things that make me different are the things that make me me, said Piglet. Quote, nom 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 nom, parentheses, sap, end quote, Olive. In I'm Afraid Not, Olive learned how to make red velvet orange cake although she still thinks there should be some meat in there somewhere. This will be a great hit at the guild hall. Parentheses, incorrect. In Out of Time, they grow up too fast. In The Trial of Tanager Goodfellow, one way to overcome your personal flaw, which is, for Olive, that I indulge in a habit that threatens my health, overeating and sedentary lifestyle, is to learn healthy eating habits. Another, equally viable way that happens to make people less afraid of you is to realize that as a level 19 monk, you don't have to eat ever again. Problem solved. And then, in The Devil We Know, well, that's the season 2021 finale. <laughs> no spoilers or commentary on that. <laughs> You're gonna have to listen to it. And now, a level 20 monk, having studied by correspondence and practiced with her friends on adventures, Olive has reached a point where she can slow down her pace. She has found what she wanted, after all, a group of friends to go on adventures with, a local community to play pickup volleyball games with, a bunch of nieces and nephews who call her their favorite volleyball coach. She has come a long way from that overweight Target employee living in a too-quiet apartment with roommates who were never home. Now she's living in her own place with a bunch of friends who come by and visit, and even a boyfriend. So... Thank you, everyone, for coming along on this adventure we call life. It had been several months since Orin had last seen his mother. After his first adventure, he decided to hunt her amulet alone, though judging from the pile of pint glasses next to him, it was a losing endeavor. The bartender slid another one in front of him. Last call, darling. Are you wanting a room for tonight? No. Orin slammed the drink back and tossed the last bit of his gold on the table. He walked through the town square, glaring at the stars that dare wink in the sky. He was orphaned again and floating aimlessly from town to town. He headed to the inn he had called home for the last month and walked up the stairs to his room. A letter sat on his pillow. The edges of the paper were slightly singed. Orin picked up the paper and read, Meet me in Nicomoy. 
I have half a plan and just enough gold to get us started. Signed, R.O. Pearl light surrounded Satara when she awoke. She leapt to her feet and began swinging at it. She called out to the nothingness. No, no, I have to go back. You have to let me go back. Orin, he's not safe. The light flashed once around her, parting to reveal a tall blue man. His form was softer on the edges, like the distant galaxies that Satara would watch when she camped at night. Oh, little one, you know you can't go back. Satara swung at the man, but her fist passed through. I did everything for you. Send me back. Now. The man seemed to consider her request. He walked a slow circle around her, deliberately placing each step. Fine. The light convulsed once more, and Satara disappeared. Deep in the forest, that same light flashed, and a young fear bulb picked herself up from the forest floor, gathered her things, and walked into the darkness. Hello, and welcome to Book 3 of The Life and Times of Tanninger Goodfellow, a Tanninger Goodfellow story. An audio autobiography written and produced by Tanninger Goodfellow, narrated by Tanninger Goodfellow, and choreography for the live stage version by Tanninger Goodfellow. We now return to our interviewer, Tanninger Goodfellow. Tanninger? Thank you, Tanninger. I'm here with Tanninger Goodfellow. We had just finished in book one, covering his early years in the Seder commune of Pan's Folly. His difficult childhood and his dramatic exit from the community. In book two, we covered his much-discussed and very tumultuous relationship with Drusilla the Dryad. And now, we've begun book three, the discussion of his years with the fire-breathing kittens. Thank you, Tanninger. I'd like to say first, I'm so happy for all the success Drusilla has found. She's a wonderful person, I'm happy to have been able to spend part of my life with her. I wish her and her commune all of the best. But now on to my time with the fire-breathing kittens. I think the years I spent with them shaped me more than any of the decades I spent cavorting about the world, partying and reveling. I think it all started the moment, well, I, I hesitate to think what my life would be like if I had never converted dear Raincloud Moonglow. That was the first time I had ever really preached my version of the Reveler and had someone respond to it. I don't think I would be the delightful, drunken, vagabond battle preacher I am today without that moment, and I will always thank him for it. And dear Olive... That girl has saved my life more times than I can count. A better fighter or a more attractive lizard you will not find. Damn be the dragons. Even Darling Beans. Aye, he's gotten me out of more than a few legal scrapes, if you catch my drift. I would not be here without the fire-breathing kittens. Truly they accepted me for the selfish, indulgent, belligerent goat that I am. And in that acceptance, they have made me better for it. Not because they wanted me to, but because I wanted to be better for them. It was just after Mendax died. You know, he's the reason I'm writing this memoir, right? I adored his book. 
Well, it was just after he passed that I really started evaluating myself and my position in relation to those I cared about. Yes, I'm very fun to be around, but I was not an effective person. I had... have so many ideals, but I could do nothing to protect them. Watching what Nesgrax went through, what he had to deal with with Mephistopheles, I, I realized that I needed to change if I was to protect those around me. And that leads me to my fundamental belief, the party. Not necessarily the loud music and drinks that one immediately thinks of when they hear the word party, but the true party. The bonds that keep us tied together. The love that we feel for one another. The emotion that we feel towards someone that we care about and wanting them to feel just as good as they make us feel. The adventuring party. Those who we go through life with. If the fire-breathing kitten's party ended, well, let's just say I wouldn't have that. That's why I started investing. Bardic colleges, fighting schools, Academia de Elegance. Anything that would make sure that my ideals... The love that we have for one another and the pure desire to make sure everyone is having a good time would live through the eons. And I hope... I hope it will. No, I know it will. Well, that's all well and good, Tanninger, but the people are dying to know. Who did you end up with? You're so private about your romantic life nowadays even with all the countless galas and balls that you attend. Always alone. Oh, wouldn't you like to know? I'll say this. I have many close friends, many loved ones, and many that I will love. But there is one person that I will always hold above all others. Someone who I find to be the most beautiful, most elegant, and frankly, the most fun person I can imagine being around. Now, who do you think that is? Now, I'm sorry, but I'm due back at the guild hall. Uh, Aaron's throwing a party, and oh god, there's so many I haven't seen. Oh, I hope Rolo will be there. Well, just remember what I always say. Love each other. Love yourself. But most of all, don't forget me. <laughs>